Tom, you've been involved in the wine trade for, of course, like 40 years, I think. So you've had a huge impact on it. I was hoping that you could take us right back to where it started, for those who don't know, and tell us how you got involved in wine and have a quick run through to where we are today. Okay, well, it's 44 years, getting on 45 now. The interest in wine started with my father when he was serving in a bar of a place called The Grand in Hastings, opposite the pier. His, his father, my grandfather, owned that. At the back of the ground, there was a large room that the um, performers from the Pavilion Theatre on the pier would come and rehearse. And the manager of that particular company would regularly drink in there. And the owner of the company said that he shouldn't be allowed to drink anything too alcoholic um, because he was known for a bit of a tipple. So he asked, that's the one who was known for a bit of a tipple, he asked my father to serve in Paul Roger 1928, which was a vintage then. Good start. Yeah. In in a silver tankard. Okay. And... uh, it was all right for the owner if, if he saw his manager drinking beer. So often the owner would pop in, and, and the way that he got my father to, because he was helping his father out, serving behind the bar, was to, was to say, we'll split the bottle between us in silver tankards each. And so the, the owner would pop in, look over, say, it's all right, what's he drinking? And my father would lift the tank and said, don't worry, he's only drinking the same, same uh, I'm drinking. And, of course, he would hold up his tankard of Paul Roger, but he couldn't see what was in it. He thought, sure. thought it was just beer. Yeah. So Paul Roger in the 1928 vintage was, um, was an early memory for me. And then during the Second World War, my aunt and uncle, my father's sister, they made room for a French guy who was the um, sales representative in France before mm-hmm. he got out of France for Charles Heiseek. Okay. So it was sort of little strands of champagne snippets in, in my background. I got into the wine trade eventually in sometime in 78 or something like that mm-hmm. um, and worked for a couple of firms. But it was really, I, I could have been selling boxes of Sanilab, you know, you were just selling boxes. And, and I was a hopeless salesman because I always knew where they could buy a better wine cheaper <laughs> and I didn't end up selling much I ended up recommending they go somewhere else right. so in uh, I just wanted to really visit vineyards meet people taste wines learn about the process and just have a great time learning about it uh, so in 1980 I decided to go off to Champagne for my first serious visit there 
of, of researching a book. And the first day, I remember well, it was 14th of January, and it was minus 14. That's why you remember it. <laughs> yes, minus, 14, minus 14 on the 14th of January. Yeah. Pretty damn cold. Had to drive very, very carefully on the roads. Of and I would get back to a little aversion to a Suman uh, called the Touraine Champenoise, and it doesn't exist. The, the building's still there, but it's a private building now. Overlooked the Marne Canal, and the Marne Canal was frozen solid. And I, in the evening, I would get into this little, very typical, traditional French auberge, and there was a big log fire there. I'd sit down and bring out notepad, and apart from all the wines that I'd made a note of, I would just sort of record a diary of the things that had happened, of the places I'd been and spoken, people I'd spoken to, and the big fat black cat that the owner had <laughs> would always sit on my lap. So I just have fond memories of going for weeks at a time, visiting numbers of champagne producers that just no one did in those days. It was one, it was one of the reasons I chose champagne, not just because I've had these little memories of champagne um, back in the family, but also, you can't believe it now, but there was not a single English-speaking champagne specialist okay. in the world. Right. And there were plenty Bordeaux experts, Burgundy experts. The Rhone and Italy were new up-and-coming areas that people were starting to specialize in. But nobody but nobody decided to specialize in the world's most famous wine because people who don't drink have heard of champagne. Exactly. Um, it's that famous, and I just couldn't imagine why. So when I went over... People in the UK wine trade um, that I was in for a short while, they could barely name you 12 brands of champagne. They didn't know anything about a cooperative champagne. Cooperative champagnes, what are they? Well, uh, grower champagnes, they never, ever heard of grower champagnes. So I was visiting about six, six to eight producers a day um, for two weeks at a time. Uh, and... It's, it was sort of happy days and happy memories. Um, it took me six years to write my first book on, on champagne. And when I was doing it, I met somebody who became a great friend of mine, a guy called, called Philippe Le Tisseron, who was head of welcome at the CIVC. And he was born locally in Ville de Marge, which is just south of France. And so he knew a few people in, in Champagne. Sure. That's why he got the job. But I was seeing people he hadn't even heard of. So he said, oh, do you mind if I come along, Tom? And, you know, just, you know, I won't say anything. You just, I just, just come along. Yeah, just come <laughs> along, meet them. And, and I said, no, fine, do that. Uh, and so we learned Champagne together. At the end of the day, we would get back to Sleepy Epinay and, Go in a bar, I would have a citron cresset because I've been drinking enough, um, well, drinking, tasting enough champagne throughout the day. And he would always have uh, a single malt whiskey. And we say adieu. And the next day, um, meet up and 
go and visit somewhere else. You mentioned in Amongst That About uh, when you were with your father and some of the early days of Champagne. And through our research, we found out that upon hearing that you were a particular fan, or I think it was your, your first bottle that you tried, was a Paul Roger, that you was, um, were sent it. Can you remember much about that experience and what it was like? Um, I think you're sort of... Was it in 1921? Just double check. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The 1921 is right. I think it's sort of muddling up the events. Several years after visiting Champagne and met, coincidentally, the very, very first day that I was in Champagne, I was uh, at a small um, hotel called the Chapon Fan uh, in Epinay, and I was wait. I was meeting uh, Philippe Petitron there, and he was asking me similar questions to the questions you're asking now. Okay. This is before we went off on our little trips. And he's, you know, he said, well, what's your favourite house? And I said, Paul Roger, and told him exactly what. And ding, ding dong, the door opened, and in walked uh, Christian Debye, who is, um, he, there was Christian Debye and Christian Paul Roger. Um, but Christian Debye, their family owned 97% of, of the firm, and Christian Paul Roger owned just about 2 or 3%. So he was a big cheese, Christian be A very small big cheese, he was a diminutive person, um, plump, a bit like me, but smaller. Uh, and Philippe Tisson introduced me to him, and we shook hands. But it was several years after that, that uh, I was around the table tasting back some old vintages with, um, with Christian Paul Roger. Right. And he was uh, asking about different old vintages that I tasted. And I said that um, I'd always wanted to taste the 1928 with my father because that was the one that he had Paul, um, it was a favorite vintage of Sir Winston Churchill, but he didn't start drinking the 28s until after the war, whereas my father drank it before when it was available. He, Winston Churchill always liked to drink his champagnes a bit more mature. And was that, and they used to drink out of it like a, almost a pint, wasn't it? Well, they were selling pints, yeah, of yeah, yes, pints of champagne, yeah, 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 and the um. Christian Paul Roger said to me, well, I'd like you to take home and to share with your father a vintage that was made before the 28 that he first tasted, the 1921. 21 was one of the great years. 28 was, 21 was too. And at the moment, uh, there were I was tasting and drinking 21 from another producer just... A few months ago, bottles of it, lots, drinking it, not just tasting it. Very well. uh, so, so, so if it's kept in, in <clears throat> ideal conditions, you can still drink it now, 100 years later. So he gave me a bottle of 1921, and I shared it with my father, and a little tear came to his eye when I told him what Christian Paul Roger had said. It was a nice moment. Yeah, I bet. I Thank you for sharing that. It was lovely. 
40 years of wine, you've been writing about wine, tasting wine and researching. It, it's a long time, there's, there's a wealth of knowledge that you've got. I was wondering, Tom, would you be able to sum up perhaps what you think the most in, important ways that the wine industry has changed over that time from what you've witnessed? Well, that would take a few days. It would. Um, is there anything particular? But the, not so much in particular, but an item of, of interest is that today you have people um, that know a, a bit about wine and, they, and critics will criticise um, everyone's trying to make Chardonnay, everyone's trying to uh, make Cabernet Sauvignon, and um, they should, in different countries all around the world, uh, and they, they should be looking to the, their own roots to look at native varieties to see. Well, if you go back to when I first started looking around, those countries with those, what have turned out to be now some wonderful native varieties, weren't making very good wines at all. They were making terrible wines. You know, the modern-day critics will criticise the internationalisation of wines with these famous varieties that are not made, so they would make them in Romania, Bulgaria. Do you mean like uh, a global um, yes. style, as it were? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But if they'd seen what was being made before, they would understand... That, that it was mostly Australians that did this, fine winemakers, and they could make these styles and everyone knew what these styles were, and they could get the local producers in each country to produce wines of a standard because you knew what they should be. And you had to get the level of um, expertise and technical equipment in every country up to the point of making good wines in a recognisable style before they could start looking at their own native grape varieties. If they, if they just went into native grape varieties to start with in those days, you, you would be looking at wines and thinking, well, is that just a bad wine or is that the variety? Can you learn more about what you can achieve in the, in the local well, area? Yes, to, to be competent at making wine, clean wine, Fresh wine, for, for example, um, in the 80s and even into the early 90s, Spanish white wines were invariably oxidised, mm -hmm. Spanish white wines. It's, it's a wonderful place to go and have all sorts of, uh, one, one of my favourites is Albarino uh, from northern Spain. Beautiful, crisp, clean, mineral style of wine, but they were all oxidized at one time. And there's probably one person who rescued um, the Spanish wine industry from this position, because if you spoke to the, the wine producers and said, well, your wines are oxidized, why don't you make a clean wine? And they would say, well, if we make clean wines, we couldn't sell them because everybody in this country wants to drink the right. same style they've been drinking before. And then there was this woman called Angela who was uh, a master of wine, still, still exists and lives. And she taught, went around and introduced technology to all of these firms and sort of turned 
the whole white wine uh, making industry on its head in uh, in Spain. And so there's you, you have to get everybody making something of a certain standard before they can then look to making more um, indigenous varieties, wines that express the, the terroir, wines that um, are completely different from wines you get in another country. So it's about setting a, a baseline, you say, yeah, this, is, this is the minimum, understand the base, yes. Knowledge, technology, you've got to have the equipment, you know, you've got to know how to make the wine. And all of that needs to be based on where you are, and it's the local terroir, and then you can adapt from that once you've learned. Yeah, well, once you've learned, yes. And you, okay. so, so the people who criticise hadn't, hadn't gone through the period where oh. they were making lousy wines, um, and they just see the internationalisation of grape varieties spreading around the world and just, you know, raise their hands in horror. And, but that's, it was absolutely necessary. Okay, because it, it was about being able to... Move on from there. Right, as you say, learn, yeah. adapt, and then what can we do within... Okay. Tom, your, your knowledge in writing on champagne is perhaps what you're most well known for. Um, even though we've touched on some of the other wines there, in Wikipedia it says that you are regarded as the world's leading authority. Don't believe a word that Wikipedia says. <laughs> I think that's a nice quote. <laughs> and then it, go, it goes on to say, Mr Fizz, which as we all know you, know you for, um, as you've been called, your 1986 book on the subject indeed won four literary awards. Mm. What is, excuse me, what is it about champagne that you find particularly alluring? It's, it's a wine that uh, is refreshing and invigorating and you can find um, champagnes that are sort of light and fresh and crisp and easy to drink going right through to um, wines that are um, deep and complex and can age for years and years and years. I, I spoke about the 1921. Um, most people would say that red wines last the longest and that um, some white wines, like great burgundies, um, would be much longer lived than champagnes. I beg to disagree on that, and I've done many uh, vertical tastings just showing how long champagne can last. Okay. And uh, the oldest champagne that I've had that still had bubbles, that was still a pale golden colour, that still had fruit, um, had no oxidised character, there was no smell of sherry or you know, brown colour, anything like that. And if you look at bottles of old Burgundy, they all get progressively browner and browner and browner. Not saying anything about great yeah. old Burgundy, because I, I love it too. Um, but it's grossly underrated, the ageing potential. The oldest one was 1892 that still had bubbles. I've tasted than much earlier, going back to the 1840s, but all of those wines were, were dead. The oldest one is 1892, and there aren't many, well, I can't think of any white wines that um, last that long. That long. And not did you be have that then? If it was an 1892 vintage, when did you drink it? Um, the last time I drank it was about, okay, so it's about 20 years ago. 
first time I drank it was about 30 years ago. It's Paul Roger. Okay. Um, so still, it's a lot of bottle age then. Wow. Yeah. And then again, you have to, you have to look at the fact that it's been kept in the cellars. Hasn't moved. Well. Yes, hasn't exactly. moved from the cellars where it was made. Whereas, even if you kept um, a burgundy in the cellars, particularly of, of, of a small grower um, in their cellars all all that time, because their cellars aren't that deep, they would not last as long. The average temperature of a champagne cellar that's cut into the chalk or in Reims or in, in the uh, tunnels that were built in Epernay is about 12 degrees. Mm -hmm. The only other one, the only one I know that's even cooler than that is uh, uh, Christian Paul Roger's private cellar within the cellar of Paul Roger, where it was a constant nine degrees. Okay. And he kept all his wines there, and you, after you've had a few dinners, with him, he would bring out these these wines, and after you've had a few dinners, you realise what the trick was. Cooler the cellar, the longer it takes to age. Right. So the younger it tastes. And so when you first start out and you've never been there, you didn't know his temperature of his own private cellar was nine degrees. You start trying to guess what the vintage is, but you you go back and you think of. Roughly, always oh, about you know twenty, thirty years of age, and you think about what were the vintages, so what could it be like, you know, and you try to work out what it is, and you inevitably got it wrong. And then after a while, you you realise you do that, and then you knock another twenty years off of it, <laughs> <laughs> and you you think well, and then you start, and then you begin to perhaps get them right, so. Temperature has a big, a big, big impact. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you about some of the, the research that you've done. Obviously, you've done a lot of writing and, and it's, uh, all your books. You discovered, if I've got this right, that it was back in the 17th century that um, I believe Eng the English sparkling wine was just before the French. How did you, how did you find that out? Well, I wouldn't say I discovered it. I mean, it had been written about okay. a, f a few times. You know, mentioned Andre Simon mentioned it first, I think, in um, one of his tomes in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and then Chris, um, Patrick Forbes mentioned it. Andre Simon didn't mention a name. Patrick Forbes did mention mm -hmm. a name. But no one, and they, they quoted from it, but no one had actually seen the document, you know. So I right. decided to dig it out. Okay. Uh, and that was the only researching bit that I, I went to. It was for the Royal Society. He read it out in um, 1662. Were you surprised by that? That it was still there. Yeah, and, and, well, and the fact that... There was a um, history that relates to an English sparkling wine. Um, not really, because, I mean, the English were inveterate fiddlers and meddlers with wine. Mm. When we they bought wine. <laughs> yeah, we, but we loved to mess around with it. When mm. we bring it in, we would, what was called, improve it. 
you know, whether we're adding, adding sugar and all sorts of things to it to, to make a different style. It's like um, the English and the Scottish that went to uh, the Douro and started improving that by fortifying mm. the wines there. I mean, do you, if, if you've ever been to the Douro Valley, it is sweltering hot. Do you really think the locals decide, what should we make here? How about a really heavy fortified wine? No, it was, it was done by the English, the Scots, uh, the Dutch that uh, came there and they decided to fortify it so they could ship it out uh, to their own countries to drink in, on a very cold, dank November evening <laughs> in a northern, northern city. Yeah, there Not... are a lot of them here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that brings us nicely into what's happening now within the English wine industry and we had a little brief discussion on it earlier. I was wondering, are you able to sum up your thoughts on English sparkling wine and how you think it compares, say, on, with champagne? Well, I, I think we're beyond trying to compare with champagne. There was, there was a time when everyone was trying to make champagne, wherever it happens to be. It is, it is the most technical, most man-made um, of all wines. You could, you could argue that a red wine or a white wine could accidentally be manifest itself if a few grapes were um, lodged in a depression in a rock before man was upright, it might have... Be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there is absolutely no way that you could have made a sparkling wine. We're making uh, a really fine, I would say, after champagne, but in our own style, um, after champagne, there's Trento, Franciacorta, England, um, that are the most exciting compact areas of production. You can get producers um, that are in the US and in Australia that are, you know, that, that also compete. But um, the, this, the unique thing about English sparkling wine is how quickly it's happened and why it's happened so quickly. French Quarter, I mentioned just now, asked me to put on a tasting of, for their winemakers, producers, uh, of English sparkling wine okay. um, a few years ago, and to explain, or try to explain, you know, the English sparkling wine phenomenon, because they've been trying to sell their product, um, which is a great product, but they've been trying to sell the product abroad and having limited success. And then all of a sudden, English sparkling wine comes along. A few years, it was only a few years before that, that English wine was a joke. Mm. And now they're suddenly the hottest thing in sparkling wine. They wanted to know. And I, I thought that that was really good and clever of the uh, French quarter producers to, to recognize that and to ask me across and to show them the wines and, um, and to explain. And I, I think the reason is that first of all, you had Nye Timber that came along and that was not for any 
English person. That was because of two Americans, Stuart and Sandy Moss from Chicago. They came along. There's a, there's a whole story there. And then when that was selected to celebrate the Queen's golden anniversary, people, you know, people with money that were looking for other investments, that sort of thing, that enjoyed wine, they, they noticed that. And so very quietly, unbeknown to most people, they were buying up land which cost... You know, back in those days, they were probably paying something like two or three thousand pounds for uh, a hectare, as sure. opposed to a million euros in in champagne. And mm. um, so they're buying up land, and the big difference was they also committed themselves. They they thought we can do this to building a winery and making everything on site. Not all of them did. Some of them, you know, just had their wines made for them. But there were so many of the entrepreneurs that decided, no, we're, we're really going to go for this. And that, that was really quite uh, a rare thing to see, that so many people decide in a country that was a joke for wine yes. to invest lots of money. And quite quickly as well. Yeah. yeah. So... And if I've been saying this for a few years, you know, if, if we are um, where we are now and the vines are still relatively young and we have a limited amount of reserve wines, which are very um, necessary in the production of a sparkling wine, holding back wines to later blend in to yeah. make, um, then... We can only get better, you know, and there, is, there, was, there was a time I remember um, I, when I was researching my first edition of the Christie's World Encyclopedia of Champagne Sparkling Wine, I almost dismissively said when somebody was pestering me to show me English sparkling wines from the Thames Valley, uh, just a, a number of producers, I said, look, I really, I'm on strict deadline here. I said, if you can get every single sparkling wine in the country together, I'll come along, taste them, pick out a few, and then, because uh, they wanted me to talk about them, and then, and then we'd talk about them. And it surprised the producers themselves, because at that time, that was 1998, it's just one year after, Nye Timber had, um, was it 98? Can't be, must have been, 90, 98 my, my book came out, 97 was when I was making the, um, the award. It must have been the 25th anniversary of something that, that's, uh, the, I can't work out the, the dates, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm getting confused on the dates here. But, um, but the, it was extremely early days of English sparkling wine. And the producers sat down there and looked around and said hello to other producers that they didn't know. Mm. And then all of a sudden the curtain, and there were 50-odd sparkling wines from different producers. And they just didn't know that that was, you know, awesome. they were in the middle of, 
you know, they, they were there mm. and uh, being represented in that, but they just didn't realise they're in the middle of this new thing that's happening. That's the end of part one. The second half is available to listen in the next podcast.